This is the official tapes, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. It is a radio program that airs on a bunch of radio stations around the globe. Every once in a while, we get off the trail, we go into the weeds, and we do some exploring. And what we're going to do is we are going to really get the old magnifying glass over a Grateful Dead song, or I should say a Grateful Dead cover song, and really see what it's all about. We're going to discover the inner workings as well as the outer workings. My name is Eric McHenry, and I live in Lawrence, Kansas, and I teach English at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. I published an essay called The Baddest Man in Town, which is deals with my research into the historical origins of the Stagger Lee legend. Of course, this is audio, but to uh, read the full essay, just go on over to the website and uh, check it out, officialtapes.com. That's where you can also find a bunch of other goodies, theofficialtapes.com. thing about American folklore, if it originated here, it might have a paper trail. There are articles about Casey Jones, there are articles about Jesse James, and there are strong clues about the origins of John Henry and things like that. When I think about this song perhaps originating in a jail in St. Louis in 1896, you know, I mean, who in American history has been less powerful than, you know, an African-American prison inmate in 1896 in St. Louis, you know, a former state of the Confederacy. And yet from that jail emerges this song that becomes legend and carries on and is adapted and becomes a number one hit and becomes just kind of a staple of so many great American musical traditions, rhythm and blues and soul and rock and roll. And then the Staggerly figure obviously prefigures uh, characters from 1970s black exploitation films and the protagonists of hip-hop songs and gangster rap and things like that, the, the black man that you don't mess with, that goes worldwide. And, you know, African-American music is one of the great cultural contributions that the United States has made to the world, maybe the greatest. And to think that it emerged from this grassroots origin of just like the least powerful, most disenfranchised, most marginalized people that it traveled through the years by word of mouth and word of guitar, you know, and, and also with a little bit of an assist from hardworking folklorists and fact gatherers and field recorders to take over the world in a sense. It's just an amazing trajectory to, to reflect on. And the story is pretty simple. You know, the actual story of what happened is pretty simple. Like a guy got mad because another guy wouldn't give him his hat, you know, and he's like, give me back my hat. And then he shot him and then coolly walked away. And that's the simplicity of that may have been a big part of its appeal. Don't mess with Stagaly. He's got this appealing name too. It's a fun name to say, different versions of it. Stagaly, Stagaly. And just, yeah, have you heard about Stagaly? Stagaly is the baddest man. You don't mess with Stagaly. Uh, he'll shoot you, you know, he'll, he'll shoot you over a hat. He'll leave your children fatherless, you know, so. I was literally just the other day in my car listening to the Lyle Lovett album, The Road Dan Sonata, and the first track on that is Well, you can have my girl, but don't touch my head. You know, if it's her you want, I don't care about that. You can have my girl, but don't touch my hat. <laughs> and, the, and the hat is a John B. Stetson in that song, too, you know, and, and I was like, 
oh my God, this alt country song from the mid nineties, it's another Stagger Lee song. You know, it's a, it's about a Stetson. It's don't touch my Stetson. You know, like that's, that is, if that's not Stagger Lee, I don't know what is, you know? So yeah, it's, there's, there's yet another genre box to check off, I suppose. <laughs> Christmas night, 1895, in central St. Louis, in the saloon of William Curtis, a guy named Lee Shelton, whose alias was Stack Lee, and who was really, I think, pretty commonly known as Stack Lee, shot and killed a man named William Lyons, or Billy Lyons, with a 44 in a dispute over a hat that was almost certainly a Stetson hat. <laughs> Those are the basic facts, and they are impressively close to sort of the central facts of most versions of the legend. Stackley and Billy Lyons had been friends and were frequent sort of drinking partners, I think, and they just got a little carried away in a conflict. And at one point, Lee Shelton busted Billy Lyons's hat. And this is all according to the transcript from the coroner's inquest, which I've now seen. So multiple witnesses sort of at the coroner's inquest, which is I think a day or two after the killing, gave basically the same version of what had happened. They started kind of whacking at each other's hats and Stackley busted Billy Lyons's hat. And Billy Lyons then took Stackley's hat as kind of collateral and said, I'm not gonna give you this back until you pay me for my hat. And Stackley said, how much do you want? Billy Lyons said, I want six bits, which is 75 cents. Stackley said six bits would buy a whole box of that kind of hat. And Billy was wearing some cheap derby, you know, or something like that and presumably Stackley's hat was a lot more valuable. And Billy refused to give him his hat back and Stackley pulled his gun and said, I'll blow your brains out if you don't give me my hat back. And Billy may have kind of lunged at Stackley or sort of, he may have begun moving toward him and he may or may not have had his hand threateningly in his pocket in which he may or may not have had a knife. All of this is a little bit uncertain, but I think when he started initially moving toward Stackley, Stackley shot him and then walked over to him and picked up his hat and said, give me my hat and uh, walked coolly out into the night and then was, was found at his girlfriend's house a few hours later by the police and was taken in without a struggle and admitted to the crime right away. Dude, this was the craziest moment in all this research probably, just searching actually random lyrics on newspapers.com, not from Staggerly, but from Duncan and Brady. I found an article from March of 1897 in the Kansas City Star called Songs of the Jails, in which the reporter had just listened to songs that inmates in the Kansas City jail were singing at the time that were popular for them to sing and had transcribed them. And this included Duncan and Brady and a complete set of lyrics included in this article for a version of Stackley, it was called, you know, at the time. And so this is 15 months after the crime itself, the, it has been converted into a song and has traveled from St. Louis at least as far as Kansas City already and is being popularly sung by inmates, all of whom apparently know it. And it was full of details that, you know, showed that whoever composed it had a really close familiarity with the crime itself, some of which had appeared in other versions, but some of which don't appear in any other version of the song that I'm aware of. Lee Shelton had a friend named Charlie Mann who was, according to witnesses in the coroner's inquest interviews, Charlie Mann was with Lee Shelton both at the saloon at the time of the crime and then found with him later when he was found by police and arrested. 
but that wasn't reported in any of the papers as far as I know. Uh, you would have had to have been familiar with either the details of the trial or the details of the coroner's inquest or just really familiar with the gossip on the street. Like you would have had to know the principles probably in order to know that Charlie Mann was part of this story. But he's mentioned in that 1897 version that I found, he's mentioned both with Stackley in the saloon and then mentioned again with him later when he's apprehended by the police. And as I say, that detail is not in any other versions of the song that I know. So there's a real kind of almost present at the creation, you know, feeling that I got looking at this 1897 version of the song. I think for a long time it's been known that it became a song almost instantaneously. And this was not uncommon in St. Louis at the time, I think in the African-American community, particularly among the river roustabouts and laborers and people in the prisons and jails, passing the time with work songs or songs that could kind of commonly be known and sung and turning the news of the day or the gossip of the day into song was a really popular pastime. Frankie and Johnny came out of the same neighborhood in St. Louis at about the same time. Duncan and Brady came out of the same part of St. Louis. It was That was based on a crime committed literally at the same intersection as the uh, Stagalee killing and just a few years earlier. And for a variety of reasons, it was known for a long time that it had become a song pretty quickly. There was a reference to a song called Stagalee in the Leavenworth, Kansas newspaper as early as August of 1897. And the lyrics to early versions of Stackley, even those that had not been sort of published until 1910, 1911, 1912, all seem to contain references that suggest that the song was written before the conclusion of Stackley's trial. He was actually tried twice. The first trial ended in a hung jury in 1896. Uh, so he wasn't actually convicted of second degree murder for killing Billy Lyons and sent to prison until the middle of 1897. The early versions of the song basically referred to details from the first trial, but not from the second trial. And so through that sort of um, carbon dating, uh, historians had, I think, accurately concluded that it had become a song right away. But no version of the song existed older than about 1910. I mean, there was a complete published version in 1910, and other researchers had found I think fragments of it, like folklorists had found fragments of, of versions of the song that were suggested an origin in the early 19, like 1903, 1904, 1905, around there. Um, and there are references to actually white stage performers singing a song called Poor Stackley as early as about 1904, 1905. The song may have originated in the jails. It may have originated among the river roustabouts and then just made its way into the jails and then traveled sort of from jail to jail, but also maybe traveled by people who were traveling for work. I mean, I think that for a long time, one reason that the St. Louis origins of the legend weren't identified by people who were looking for those origins was because it was really widely believed that the song had originated in Memphis. And that's because it had traveled down the river to Memphis right away, probably, you know, and it, it seemed like a Memphis song. And St. Louis and Memphis are very, they're kind of like, especially in the era of, uh, you know, river traffic and the steamboat era, they were very much like sister cities, you know, one kind of almost blent into the other in terms of how many people were moving back and forth between them. And so I think that that may be one of the reasons that the St. Louis origins of the legend remained somewhat obscure for a long time. And of course, Memphis is so associated with music too. And St. Louis was an incredibly important musical city 
in the 19th century in a way that's maybe been somewhat forgotten at this point, the reading that I've done. I mean, it really was sort of the cradle of ragtime. You know, you had Scott Joplin in Sedalia and then you had Tom Turpin in St. Louis and W.C. Handy passed through around that time and picked up musical influences from there. And it was just a really, really musical place. A lot of the, the news and gossip of the day was just being set to song, whether by people who were nominally or professionally songwriters or just people who were making up songs to pass the time. why this one stuck, you know, because that's a really interesting question. If all these songs were emerging at the time, like why is this the one that is remembered? I don't know that any one person can possibly answer that, but it, the answer that I sort of venture in my essay, and this is informed again by reading that I've done you know, of writings by African-American studies experts and people much more qualified to answer this question than I am. Stackley was kind of a, a really important early bad man figure at a time when the bad man as a figure, like as sort of an archetype, was first emerging in African-American folklore. There had been other sort of heroic figures in African-American folklore, trickster figures or noble figures like John Henry, who beats the steam drill in a, in a competition and with his strength and determination and then dies, but he, he died doing this noble thing, the sort of victory for humanity that he won. The bad man is very different. You know, that's a black guy who just takes no crap from anybody. You know, that's a guy that will shoot you if you touch his hat, you know, and you can understand how having a, at a time when racism is just a daily reality, like profound, dangerous, you know, deadly racism is a daily reality for African-Americans in St. Louis. The appeal of this figure that you can tell stories about who is above and beyond or outside all of that somehow, who, who plays exclusively by his own rules. And another aspect of its versatility is how many different ways you can choose to interpret Staggerly, you know, and as I mentioned, like in that 1897 version, the earliest version that's known, one curious thing about that is that Staggerly is clearly, demonstrably not a bad man in that version. He's kind of a dumbass, you know, like he's a guy, the tone of that song is, Oh, Staggerly or Stackerly, what have you done? You know, like you, you killed somebody over a worthless old Stetson hat and now you're scared and you know, your buddy Charlie Mann has deserted you and now you're even more scared and you're lying in your cell, unable to get to sleep because of what deep trouble you're in. It's murder in the first degree, you know, and all this. And so that's a long ways from the bad man. You know, it has all the details there in the of the story, but that's a long ways from the bad man that Staggerly would become. And then by the time you get to Mississippi, John Hurt in the 20s, he is a bad man, but he's bad in the kind of unironic short A sense of the word bad, you know, like he's, he's a bad man. He's a bad guy. He's cruel. Oh, cruel Staggerly, you know, or Stackoly, I guess is how Mississippi John Hurt titled it. That song is condemning him, I think. That song is not kind of trying to obliquely praise him in any way, but he becomes bad with a longer A, you know, in a more drawn out A later on as the century goes on and you, you can say that bad man and mean it in a totally different way, obviously in African-American vernacular English particularly. And so, so by the 50s and 60s, you know, Lloyd Price's version, the backup singers are cheering, go Staggerly, go Staggerly, you know, and a lot of the, the versions that come later are obviously kind of admiring of that bad man and are, are grateful to have a, 
a man that, as I say, just tolerated no insults and did anything that he wanted to exclusively in his own interest. To have a black man doing those things that you could tell stories about, there was a kind of catharsis, like a, a great visceral pleasure that could be taken in that. My view is that black artists more or less stopped recording Staggerly, you know, with a few exceptions, but it, it seems like the versions we hear the most about after about 1975 or so are recorded by white artists, including The Clash and The Grateful Dead and Nick Cave's version, you know, and Tim and Molly O'Brien did a version. And, and I, I kind of think that's maybe because the need for that bad man character as sort of the anti-hero hero of the murder ballad it disappeared from black culture, or that rather the need didn't disappear, but that figure, Stagger Lee, was replaced by these other figures, the, you know, Shaft and Dolomite and Superfly, and then the Ice Cube and NWA, you know, and Tupac and, and uh, other guys that could kind of fulfill that role. Nick Cave's version is interesting to me because he is so clearly attracted to the transgressive element of it. You know, like Nick Cave's version is like deeply unsettling. You know, you, you need to be sitting down when you're when you're listening to it. Oh, well, Billy, Billy dropped down a slob on his head and stick filled him full of lead. It goes kind of all in on the cruelty. There definitely is something to that idea that we like songs that allow us to project. Most of us, thankfully, don't like horribly transgressing in our own daily lives. Like, we don't actually like committing murders, you know? <laughs> but singing about them is a sort of a way of maybe, I don't know, exhausting that transgressive impulse without doing it in a more harmful or, or dangerous way. And I feel like I saw an interview with Nick Cave at some point where he said, yeah, Stagger Lee, like, there's just no limits to how evil this song can become. And I thought, that is interesting that that's the way that Nick Cave chooses to interpret it, that it's principally a song exploring human evil. And he unquestionably has done that in a really interesting way. But I don't think that's what it was about when it was so prominent in African-American folklore. Like, I don't think that there was this interest in evil that feels like more of a, a white guy thought experiment to me, you know, this, this exploration of evil. I think that, that it was that cathartic quality of, of being able to tell stories about the bad man that nobody messed with and here's how bad he was. And that that, you know, shifted as the Staggerly figure was replaced by other figures in, in what you would call African-American folklore that, that serve a similar role, so. Most of the songs also have some version of, they have like a, a that hat verse. Staggerly said Billy, man, you know I can't go with that. I done want all your money and your great big stairs and hat. Talking about the bad man. Cool old Staggerly. What I think of is the that hat verse. And it's always some version of like, what do you think of that? 
Stagley killed Billy Lyons over an old Stetson hat or over a $5 Stetson hat or something like that. Billy said to Stagley, man, you know I'm going like that. You know I done won all your money. Man, your brand new Stetson hat on my debate, man. Come in, grew Stagley. Billy said to Stagley, man, you know I'm going like that. I done won all your money. The Grateful Dead's version has a that hat verse in it at the beginning. Do you know what he shot him for? What do you make of that? Cause Billy didn't learn through the lucky dice. One Stagley steps ahead. Well, it seems so trivial, and, and that too is both, it's interesting how that gets interpreted by different songwriters through over the evolution of the song. You know, it's presented as a rhetorical question, but you know, there's no obvious answer to it. The answer could be like, that fool Stagley, what a stupid thing to be shooting somebody over. And I think that is kind of the tone in the 1897 version. Or it could be like, what do you think of that? That's how little provocation this bad man needs to kill you. That's how bad he is. You know, it, it can either be used to emphasize his sort of pettiness and rashness and or it can be used to emphasize his badness you know and it's interesting how many different ways that verse seems to be or versions of that verse seem to be interpreted in by different singers and songwriters yeah. the sheer sort of genre diversity what other song might possibly compare but you listen to woody guthrie or pete seeger do Staggerly, and it sounds very much like out of their folk tradition. And you listen to Ma Rainey's version, and it's actually, she's kind of overlaid the name Staggerly on the story of Frankie and Johnny, you know, and that's an early blues version with a lot of its sort of familiar tropes and moves. And then you get Cab Calloway and you get Louis Armstrong, yeah, and you get a Mississippi John Hurt sort of folk blues version. And But by the time you get to the 50s, rock and roll and, and the New Orleans inflected rock and roll of Lloyd Price's version. And, and in the 60s, you get James Brown and Wilson Pickett and Ike and Tina Turner and these kind of soulful, funked up versions of it. <laughs> Boyo is, you know, it's The Clash, which is a sort of punk and rock band, but doing a sort of a reggae song that they've adapted from a band called The Rulers, I think, and that's a kind of a reinterpretation of the legend, too. And so now we've got reggae in there. And you say that there's no one's ever attempted a disco version of it at your own risk, because somebody probably has, and someone, someone will up unearth that. I have listened to as many versions of the song as I can get my hands on and have always been struck by, and as I mentioned in the essay, the diversity of sounds, you know, like sort of the diversity of like, take another song like Goodnight Irene. Everybody who sings that sings kind of a version of the same melody, as far as I know, anyway, right? The, the songs all sound sort of recognizably like 
one another, regardless of who the performing artist is. And, and if I'm wrong about that, apologies for picking a bad example. But, you know, we can think of others, you know, this land is your land has a common melody, you know, that we all can hum and sing and things like that. With Stagger Lee, different versions of it, they sound so unlike one another. You know, there are some where you can clearly say, well, this was obviously influenced by the Frank Hutchinson version, or this was obviously influenced by the Mississippi John Hurt version, or this was obviously influenced by, like, this is out of the New Orleans tradition that gives us Archibald and then Lloyd Price's famous number one hit version, and then Professor Longhair's version and Dr. John's version and stuff like that. They kind of have their own distinct sound. They're sort of like little nuclear families within the larger extended family of Staggerly songs, but there's not a consistent, I don't think it's responsible to say that the attractiveness of any particular musical arrangement is the reason that the story endured. Um, I think the inverse is true, like the story seems to be what has carried interest in the song forward. I mean, there are beautiful songs. I, I think so many of these songs I just adore. But the fact of that diversity, you know, suggests that it's the appeal of the story that has allowed it to endure all of this time, you know, rather than like, because a great melody can kind of carry any story forward, you know, no matter whether the story is interesting or not. If it's a beautiful song to hear, it'll go on getting sung, it seems like to me. But but in the case of Stagger Lee, there must be some inherent interest in the story itself that that brings it forward. story it is really interesting to me that the core story it seems to me has just a few elements always in common you know that, that are repeated in song after song that a guy named staggerly or some version of that killed a guy named billy lyons or some version of that in a dispute over a stetson hat with a 44 and that billy lyons uh, pleaded for his life because he had a wife and children and Staggerly killed him anyway because he was a bad man and everybody knew that he was a bad man. And that historians had kind of concluded, wow, a lot of that is true. Here's Staggerly killing Billy Lyons. It's with a 44. It's in a dispute over a hat. However, it doesn't seem to us that Staggerly was actually that bad a guy that got exaggerated over the years as the legend grew, nor does it seem to us that Billy Lyons likely had, you know, a wife and kids. And it turns out that the evidence, I think, more strongly suggests that the legends were writer about both of those things than the than the historians initially were. I mean, the historians came to different conclusions, so I shouldn't try to sort of depict them as all en masse, but Lee Shelton was actually just kind of a, you know, a guy that, you know, gambled and hung out in rough places like saloons on Christmas night, but that he wasn't a cold-blooded killer and that this legend that depicts him as this merciless, baddest guy who ever lived was really really unfair to him. And, you know, there's something to that, but I don't think anybody had a sense of just how many times Stackley had pistol whipped somebody or shot at somebody or robbed somebody, you know, prior to his killing Billy Lyons. There was one story from 1894 where he shot at a guy named Thomas Gibson, missed him, and so then beat him up with the butt of the pistol instead. And I was reading that and thinking, wow, if he'd hit him, I wonder if the story today would be Staggerly shot Tommy instead of Staggerly shot Billy. I wonder if we would have gotten a completely different name, but still some version of the same legend. I, I really don't know, you know, but once I started looking through these newspapers, 
like Stack Lee Shelton was in the papers all the time for beating the hell out of people and shooting at people and, you know, and robbing people. And, you know, he had a, he may not have had a criminal record for complicated reasons, um, including him having influence and pull and cops not caring about crimes whose victims were black. But he had a, a long paper trail in the newspapers anyway, in their crime pages. Um, he was widely understood to be a pretty bad character, you know, or a pretty dangerous character. And that, so it was interesting to me that like what I was finding in the historical papers was somewhat inconsistent with what the research had said, but was actually very consistent with the legend. You know, like the songs seemed to have been right about who Staggley was, who Billy Lyons was, the fact that he had a family and things like that. And it's not quite as simple as all that, but it, it sure was an interesting sort of an opportunity for a second look at this story and its historical origins, especially if those historical origins like aligned more closely with the legend than we had even thought they did. I was aware that back in the early 2000s, a book was published called Staggily Shot Billy by Cecil Brown. Harvard University Press published it. And I read some coverage of it at the time and was kind of intrigued that this was a piece of folklore, like a legend that actually had a historical origin. So I was intrigued to learn that Stagger Lee, the Stagger Lee legend, and all of those songs had an identifiable origin point. And so then when I kind of discovered the sorts of things that you could find on newspapers.com. Initially, I was researching other things, but I just at some point I got curious, like, oh, I wonder if I can find those original articles about Stack Lee Shelton and the killing of Billy Lyons in St. Louis that I vaguely remembered from back 15 or so years ago, reading about it for the first time. And I looked in the archives and yeah, there was a, an abundance of stuff. There was really a treasure trove of information and really colorful, interesting articles. And I got a copy of Cecil Brown's book and I got hold of a copy of John Russell David's dissertation. And I was reading other essays that had been written about the historical origins of Stagger Lee. And, I, and at some point I noticed, I don't know, I can't remember an exact light bulb moment, but it certainly occurred to me at some point that like a lot of what I was seeing in the historical newspapers really um, complicated the picture that had been painted by these earlier researchers or even contradicted it in some cases and that I don't fault the researchers at all. They didn't have access, as I said, to these keyword searchable archives that I have, but there had been a general conclusion reached, it seems like, that Billy Lyons probably didn't have a wife and kids. There was a little bit of question about that, but he was, Billy Lyons was listed as single on his death certificate. And so even though in all of the songs, he's Billy Lyons in every version of the song, practically, he appeals to Stagley not to shoot him because I have these children and this wife, you know, and the researchers had basically concluded there wasn't much evidence to support that. But I found, you know, an article at one point that talked about the stepdaughter of Billy Lyons who had recently been killed by Lee Shelton, you know, and that got me going down that trail. And with the Billy Lyons family, there are two very plausible narratives in which Billy Lyons actually did have a wife and children, just like the songs always say. But those two narratives are somewhat hard to reconcile with each other. And there are sort of holes in both narratives. So to be continued, I would say, on the question of whether whether Billy had a wife and kids. About Lily Shelton, Stack Lee's alleged wife, that's an interesting uh, other matter too. Yeah, their early songs often referred to 
Lily Sheldon and, and in a context as though this is clearly Stagger Lee's girlfriend or wife or woman, you know, or what have you. Um, Sheldon, S-H-E-L-D-O-N, which is really interesting in light of the fact that when Stack Lee's identity was finally, you know, sort of rediscovered in 1973, his name turned out to be Lee Shelton, which means that his, uh, an almost version of his last name had been kind of hiding in plain sight in these songs, uh, some of the songs for, for many, many years. But nobody had been able to determine if there really was a Lily Sheldon or Shelton or not. He clearly, according to the historical narrative, had a girlfriend. And I found an article from 1896 that referred to his girlfriend by name as Lily Moore. And uh, I thought, that's interesting. I wonder if she became Lily Shelton eventually. And then I stumbled upon a, a city directory that somehow had been overlooked by past researchers, even though they had dug, like John Russell David and others had dug deeply into the old St. Louis city directories. But in 1897, there was a Lily Shelton, just for that one year, there was a Lily Shelton living in St. Louis. And she was living at 914 North 12th Street, which was Stack Lee Shelton's address two years earlier, you know? And so I thought, what are the odds that, you know, this is a coincidence that, that someone named Lily Shelton who had not, there had been nobody by that name in St. Louis at around this time until this one particular year. And suddenly here she is and she's living at what had been his address until that time. So it seems to me there's strong, at least circumstantial evidence that, that Stack Lee had a wife as well. She wasn't that prominent in the songs the way Billy's family was, but uh, but she was there in the early versions. And it's interesting that it's another bit of the folklore that the factual record suggests was true all along. research has been an education for me in just how ridiculously inaccurate and irresponsible 19th century journalism was. And one of the reasons that I don't accept at face value that Billy Lyons had a stepdaughter, despite the fact that there's an article right there saying William Lyons' stepdaughter, the William Lyons who was killed by Lee Shelton, there's only one article that says that. Like, there's no other article mentioning that. And I, I found that corroboration is, for lack of like sort of a gold standard, like, multiple sources independently corroborating a thing lend, you know, a sense of validity to that, you know, fact. And I know this is just sort of the historian's method, you know, of, of uh, getting at stuff. Um, but I've, the, the value of that has really come home to me um, while doing this research. Yeah. Um, it's very tempting to, to say, wow, the, the songs were right all along. We should really trust the folklore. There's a lot of sort of romantic appeal in that, the idea that the folklore has been sort of an accurate sort of uh, vessel for the truth all this time and that researchers have stumbled in and muddied the waters, whereas the folklore was always really clear. It's not actually like that at all. Each of these different narratives, you know, the, the original event and the immediate documentary record after it, the journalistic recording of it, the songs and the folklore, 
researchers and historians getting inspired by the songs and the folklore to look back, each of them contributes, you know, something valuable to our overall picture of what's true or not. Um, and none of them is, is completely reliable. And you just have to keep looking for corroboration, corroboration, corroboration. There's a great story that I didn't have time to go into at all in the article that I wrote, but in early 1896, and I'm convinced that this contributed to the making of the Stagger Lee legend. In early 1896, apparently Lee Shelton convinced the deputies to let him out of prison uh, or out of jail, accompanied by them so that he could go visit his dying mother. And according to numerous reports in the newspapers, he then kind of snookered the uh, deputies into accompanying him to the saloon where he killed Billy Lyons, where he bought a round of drinks for everybody. And, and the woman that was allegedly his dying mother that he went to visit was actually his girlfriend. And he ended up having like an hour of privacy with her. And he got, he got this whole sort of grand day out with a police escort. And that was, that's how it was reported, you know, in the papers and the deputy sheriff was reprimanded and was at risk of losing his job and things like that. It's the perfect thing for this legendary bad man to have done, right? You know, to contribute to the legend. And in fact, it may have been in part responsible for the launching of the legend. An interesting wrinkle in all of this. So one of the reports, one of the sort of punchlines of these newspapers was that, well, it's funny that Stackley said he was going to visit his dying mother because in fact, his mother had been dead for 12 years and haha, ha, the joke is on the deputies, you know, yet again. And that was reported and repeated and repeated in article after article and never really questioned, even though they included the name of, uh, or rather the address of uh, Lee Shelton's mother in these articles. Well, using that address, I, you know, looked her up and Charlotte Shelton was not dead, had not been dead for 12 years at that time. She was in fact still alive, but would die the following year which suggests that she may even have been ill at the time and that her illness may well have been the reason that Stackley was given this sort of mercy reprieve to go and, and visit her. And yeah, she died in 1897. So I found, yeah, her death certificate. There's an authoritative document, a death certificate, right? Yeah, that's, that's hard to question, you know, an, an official death certificate. So what was wrongest in all of this? It was that sensational journalistic article back in 1896 that falsely repeatedly reported that a very much alive woman was dead and had been dead for 12 years and gave her address, you know, and yet nobody bothered to verify that she was in fact dead and, and there was no retraction or correction or anything like that ever printed. I mean, we may have our objections to the journalistic conventions of today, but I worked for a journalist for 15 years. I would have lost my job the next day, you know, like if I reported that this this alive, very much alive woman were dead. But it, clearly it was a sensational thing that made for a better story. And so it was reported in all the, the big daily newspapers. Now, a really, uh, an early version of the song collected by um, John Lomax in, I think, 1911 or so, contains... Uh, the following courtroom exchange. Uh, Gentlemen of this jury, we must let poor Staggerly go. His poor and aged mammy is lying very low. Gentlemen of this jury, wipe away your tears for Staggerly's aged mammy has been dead these 11 years. <laughs> you know, so, so clearly that false newspaper report then ended up in an early version of the song and ended up influencing, you know, the legend. It, that seems to me pretty apparent. I mean, they the song could have been reporting the same gossip that the newspaper was also reporting. So it may not be that the newspaper is 100% to blame there, but I thought that was such an interesting 
example of a newspaper, you know, the first draft of history introducing a lie and then the lie influencing the legend. And yeah, it just shows the unreliability of, of all of these sources and that, that need for corroboration. I've had a long-standing interest in American history and American folklore, sort of a dabbler's interest. But when I discovered a few years ago, and I was a little late to the party with this, I think, but that within the last maybe, I don't know, six or seven years, just a ton of really interesting historical content has been made available widely on the internet. This here song from back in the day, 1900 and 62. I was kind of amazed at the sorts of things that I could discover that past researchers wouldn't have been able to nearly so easily get their hands on because now you can just enter, if you're researching, you know, Lee Shelton, which was the name of the historic Stacker Lee or Stagger Lee, you can enter Lee Shelton in a search box on newspapers.com in quotation marks and sort of narrow your search to the state of uh, Missouri and to a particular time frame. And anytime that name appeared in the paper, it'll come up. And so there's just a list of references before you. And so a much more complete picture can very easily be put together you know, of a historical figure. So I just found that kind of historical research really thrilling and really seductive. And I was just impressed by the sorts of discoveries that can all of a sudden be made just by a guy in Kansas with his laptop that uh, I would have had to travel to St. Louis and pour through old physical archives or scroll through old microfiche, you know, for a long time in order to have a hope of discovering in the past. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, continue spending many late nights in these digitized, you know, archives and, and seeing what I can turn up. I feel like there are so many stories related to the Stagger Lee origins that I didn't have room to include in the essay in the American Scholar that I would still like to write about. And so I have my eye on maybe a, eventually a book about this, but uh, we'll see what sort of form it takes. It's one of the great pleasures of this whole experience has been being able to help the incredible work of John Russell David particularly come back to light. He's somebody that I feel like, although I never met him and I was only 14 when he passed away, I, I feel like I know him very well through reading drafts of his dissertation and looking at the work that he collected and through talking with his wife, Judith, and I had a brief correspondence with his son. It was poignant to me that this was a guy who was even more obsessed with getting to the origins of this and other legends than I am, and who had really made huge strides in it, but was never able to see that work through to fruition fully, because although he completed his dissertation and his PhD, as I said, he, he passed away when he was still very young and wasn't able to publish his book. And so I feel like in a sense, what I'm doing is dedicated to, to him, this guy I've never known, but I feel very, very affectionate toward. I felt like a collaboration between me and John Russell David, who 
was the original sort of scholar who discovered it. Obviously, the African-American community, it had been known sort of consistently throughout the years. But he passed away at the age of 47 in 1987 after contracting um, or coming down with cancer and um, wasn't able to ever publish his dissertation. And it, it's sort of a, a tragic thing. But I contacted his widow and she was kind of looking to clean out her basement where his files and things had been sitting for 30 plus years. And so she invited me to come to St. Louis and take them off her hands. And I was, I was there the next day. <laughs> so I had the great blessing of this, this John Russell David archive, which included so many important documents that I couldn't have found on, you know, my little internet searches. I, the, as I say, the transcript of the coroner's inquest and the original arrest warrant and prison records with Stagley's fingerprints on them and just incredible stuff like that, as well as audio recordings of his interviews. It's fascinating to me that we're not that much farther removed from, or I rather we're not that much closer to the early 1970s when John Russell David was doing this research than he was to the actual crime. You know, like he was, coming along between 70 and 80 years after the actual crime. And so he's almost at the halfway point between us and that history, which does seem so ancient, but really isn't, you know, that long ago. Spotify at the end of the year will tell you what your most listened to songs were, you know, in a given year. And I was like, oh, I'll be damned. My most listened to genre was versions of Stagger Lee. <laughs> Who would have guessed, you know, and, and they sound different from each other. But 